Amen.
If you have your Bibles, let us turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be reading verse 17. The Bible says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. May the Lord add a rich blessing to the reading of his word. loving Heavenly Father, our wonderful loving God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're so thankful, Lord, that you've blessed us with an opportunity this morning to assemble in your presence at the foot of Jesus, at the foot of the cross. It is a solemn thing, Lord, to stand before your people. It is very serious. It is impossible for me to do what needs to be done this morning without your help. Please bless me and the congregation with your Holy Spirit. If there be any demonic agencies in our midst, please remove them kindly, swiftly, immediately, so we can worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. We love and thank you so much for answering this prayer. And we thank you as always in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Sister Jeannie. Can you all hear me? Yes. Sabbath morning, then the house of the Lord. The Bible says, the preacher wrote, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is what? Safe. Safe. Proverbs 18.10. So that means what the Bible is telling us, what the wisest man that's ever lived, according to the Bible, is telling us, Safety in Jesus can run, not necessarily with our feet and legs, but with our spiritual minds running to him for the safety of his protection, of his love, of his salvation. There's no safer place to be on this planet, in this universe. Solar system, galaxy, whatever you want to use or utilize, there's no safer place than in the arms of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Jesus came to this earth. He embodied all of heaven on two legs. All the love that could have been given to anyone was given to him. We have to represent him just as well. How do I know that? I'm going to read something from Christ's Object Lessons before we pray. That's going to tell us just that. For those of you who may be taking notes, Christ's Object Lessons... Page 69, I'm sure it's a, a quote you've all read or at least have heard over the years. 
Christ Object Lesson 69. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. Who's his church? Well, that's you and that's me. Amen? Amen. Then she says, when the character of Christ shall be perfectly, how? Perfectly, perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. So we know there's going to be 6,000 years of sin on this earth and a 1,000-year Sabbath rest in heaven. But Christ isn't necessarily waiting for that 6,000-year waymark. He's waiting for us to manifest his spirit, his character in, him, in us. Now, are we able to do that on our own? That's impossible. But the good news is, brothers and sisters, that he wants to condescend, reach down his hand, according to Isaiah 41, verses 10 and 13, and help us, to take us by the right hand and help us to get to heaven. There's no bigger cheerleader in this universe than Jesus for you and me. He wants to save us. And there's nothing more important to him than saving you and me. That's all he wants to do. That is his aim, his purpose, is to save human beings. My prayer is that everyone sitting before me in this congregation is saved in heaven, that we're all neighbors in heaven, that we're all feasting from the tree of life and the river of life in heaven. Can somebody say amen? amen. That is my prayer. That is my prayer. So I'd like you all to please take the official position. We're going to approach the throne of grace, and we're going to study. Amen? Once again, so thankful. I have no problem speaking in front of an audience, but I do have difficulty and feel uncomfortable speaking about myself. So I need you, Lord, to navigate me through this. In the book of Acts, when Peter was about to expound on how he was going to turn the gospel to the Gentiles, questioned about it, and the Bible says that he rehearsed, he rehearsed the matter regarding the vision you gave him with the sheet that came down from heaven, tied on four corners. I'm going to rehearse my life in front of your people. I pray that I'm not glorified in any way that you receive all the glory, honor, and praise, that you created a miracle, a miracle, and I pray that somebody here will be blessed by the words you give me to speak. Again, I thank you and love you and ask it in Jesus' name. Testimony. That was one hour. This is not going to be one hour. Amen. So I'm all I can share within 30 minutes, maybe 40. We'll say 30 plus or minus, plus or minus. So I was born and raised in San Francisco, California, as many of you know. Father, sister, brother. We were San Francisco is a city. It is the 13th largest city population 
and wise in this nation. As most large cities, California is full of large cities, San Diego, Los Angeles, San Jose, San Francisco, Sacramento, and on and on and on. Big city by nature is a worldly. I was raised Roman Catholic. Music was one of mine from birth. Okay, I'll do that, brother. Testing? Amen. Amen. So again, I was exposed to music at a very early, early age, probably while I was actually in the womb. My dad and all his brothers, my uncles, sang at clubs and different places when they were young, growing up. And so I was exposed to music. My home always had the latest albums, the latest music, the top of the charts music, R&B, jazz. That was my exposure. So for my 12th birthday, and I'm, I'm laying a foundation. For my 12th birthday, my dad asked me what I wanted for my birthday. You can have anything you want. I said, I want that new album by the Ohio Players. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I want that new Ohio Players album. So he bought it for me. The next year now, I'm in eighth grade, and I go out and purchase my first record album with my own money. Now, I didn't realize when I bought that album, it was an album by the Blackbirds, by the way, a, a very popular R&B group back in the day. Some of you again know what I'm talking about. I didn't realize at 13, when I purchased that album, that it was the beginning. At some point, maybe 12, 13 years later, I would have a collection of eight thousand record albums eight thousand so this was the genesis as it were of my life of worldliness but i didn't realize it of course as a youth something very very important happened to me at 13 maybe 14 years old as well again i'm a little uncomfortable talking about myself so i'm asking the lord to, to help me along i had my own component set what they called component sets back then stereos it was a Fisher stereo. Brother Larry knows what I'm talking about. And I was in my room one night. Now, I'm going to go over about six or seven what I would call turning points in my life. Everyone's life has a turning point. Well, I had about six or seven of them, major ones. This was the first one, major turning point. I'm in my room. I'm on the stereos. I'm on the AM dial. And I'm going back and forth with the dial, going up and down through the band, the band whisk and the the stations, and I noticed that some stations really stood out more prominent than others. Others were really faded back in the background, very fuzzy, blurry. You couldn't really hear them as much. Those are the ones I was trying to focus on, wondering why they were like that, why the transmission wasn't as receptive or, or prominent as the, the major stations. So I fix on one station, and I hear a basketball game. It's an NBA game between the Denver Nuggets and the San Antonio Spurs. Now we're talking about turning points. I can hear this game. It's very faint, but I hear it. A timeout is called by the Denver Nuggets, and the announcer comes on the radio. Here's what he says. He says, 
Such and such time left remaining in the third quarter. Scoreboard shows Denver Nuggets, such and such, San Antonio Spurs, such and such. This is the Denver Nuggets flagship radio station. When he said that, that caught my attention. I said, wait a minute now. This, this is a radio station based in Denver, Colorado. I'm in San Francisco. So I called one of my best friends immediately. I said, you won't believe what I'm listening to on the radio. He said, what? I said, I'm listening to a Nuggets Spurs game on the radio in my bedroom. He said, so? I said, no, you don't understand, my friend. This is a station that I'm hearing from based out of Denver, Colorado. He said, no way. I said, way. So that, that moment, that situation, that circumstance catapulted me, directed my life in a completely different direction. I made up my mind that night. Now, 13 years old, I made up my mind. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life, but whatever it is, it's going to be in radio. I don't even know what, what radio does or what radio is, except I listen to it in my room, right, or in the car. But I'm going to be working in radio some kind of way. So that was the beginning. There was a seed planted that night that I didn't realize how much it would manifest later in life. But I'm going to be in radio one way or the other. So about a year after that or two after that, and again, I'm accumulating record albums, and I end up giving my first what we called house parties back then, garage parties. And I gave one at our house, and it was very successful. All the kids came from school. At this point, I'm in high school, 10th grade, and uh, it, was a, it was a smash hit. So again, we're talking about beginnings. We're talking about turning points. So I continued to give house parties throughout my time in high school. I also started to develop these cassette tapes. Some of you remember cassette tapes? All right. I know I'm going back a little further than you may, some of you may be comfortable with. So I started creating my own radio station, 108.1, with my initials, K-E-B-B Radio. And I would, do, I would imitate the disc jockeys on the radio, and I would have friends that would come by, and I would record in my bedroom, and they'd be the newscaster or the weathercaster, and we had our own little radio station set up. I thought I was doing it just for fun, but people actually would hear them and want to buy these tapes from me in high school. So I said, well, maybe I'm on to something here. Maybe I'm doing something right. So that, again, was the beginning of something else. So I kept doing house parties. I got to high school. I'm in high school. Now I'm done with high school. I graduate. My dad asked me, he says, okay, Elvin. You're out of high school. You're getting ready to go to college. You can have either a brand new car for your graduation present or a $600 Fisher stereo. So now we're, we're, we're graduating now. $600 for a stereo was a nice stereo back in the day. You can have a car or a stereo. Which one do you think I picked? I picked the stereo. I said, I'll just drive my parents' car. I want that stereo. So he bought me that stereo. So again, we're continuing to ascend up the ladder of sin. I just couldn't see it at the time. So I got accepted into several schools, a couple out of state, most of them in California. I chose San Jose State. Went to San Jose State. And right around this time, I have to, have to slide this in. My sister, my only sibling, Vivian Bridges, was diagnosed with a very rare condition called myasthenia gravis. She was diagnosed at 14 years old, and it was devastating to see her decline. 
a lot of health issues. At one point, she was in the hospital for one solid year. When you're on prednisone, which is a steroid, it demineralizes the bones. We didn't know that. I had no education in health whatsoever. Neither did my parents. The doctors were gods. So she was on these steroids, and they demineralized her bones, and she actually broke a vertebrae in her back. And she was in so much pain for weeks, and we couldn't figure out what was wrong because the prednisone masks the x-ray. So you can't even see hairline fractures. So they would x-ray her and x-ray her, and the MRIs weren't back then where they are now. So finally, they saw this hairline fracture in her back, and she had a body cast on for a whole year. But we'll get back to that. So I went to college. I got there, San Jose State. The first thing I wanted to find was the college campus radio station. Where's the radio station? Somebody showed me where it was. I went to the radio station, tried to find the program director. He wasn't there that day. So I left a tape in his, in his inbox, in his mailbox, and my phone number to my dorm room. He called me the next day. You're hired. But I have to at least make it official. I have to audition you. So typically... The lowest ratings period or the lowest listenership for any radio station is on Sunday night between 2 and 6 in the morning. So he auditioned me and another sister at that time, and I passed with course with Flying Colors, and he, he hired me, and I started working on college radio, on college radio, the college radio station. It was KSJS, college radio. That was big for me, very big. Again, we're moving propelling ourselves forward to a life of sin, a life of sin, and a life of self. So, of course, the ego was through the roof. So I started working at that radio station. After school, I moved back to San Francisco, and I blew up as a, as a very popular disc jockey, doing all the clubs, doing concerts. It was very common for me to be mixing records in front of 20,000 people. I was very good at what I did. I wasn't just a disc jockey who worked the ones and twos, and mixed records together. I, I considered myself a turntable technician. I was very good at what I did, and I knew I was good at what I did. So now, one of my best friends, and by the way, all the concert and the majority of the concert promoters in the San Francisco Bay Area were all young drug dealers. These were millionaires in their early 20s. So they would hire the disc jockeys, including me, to come and play at these concerts in between these major acts that they fly in from anywhere in the country or the world because they could afford it. So I was very, very popular. Name was on the radio all the time. But this one particular drug dealer who was my best friend who I knew since like fifth grade, he went to L.A. to do a drug deal with half a million dollars in cash in a suitcase. And they killed him, murdered him face down on the hotel room floor. They shot him in the back of the head, mob style. They murdered him. That was another major, major waymark in my life, major. I couldn't believe this dude was dead. We, we mourned for months. When you're that young and somebody you grew up with gets killed, especially like that, it affects you. It really affects you. So I made a major decision at that point. I said, okay. And let me digress just a second. At his funeral now, I remember the, the minister. This was, this, when somebody young dies, the funeral, there are so many people. I'm sure some of us have experienced that. I'm talking about at least 1,000 people, minimum. Cars all the way down the street, nowhere to park, nowhere to sit. 
And I remember the minister, and again, I'm living a total irreligious life at this point. I'm not even Catholic anymore. I'm nothing, right? This minister says that this young man is in heaven. He's looking down on us. He's in a better place. He's, he's acquired his wings, and he's happy. And the thought crossed my mind just for, just for a second, just for a second, kind of went in and went out. It crossed my mind, how was this dude in heaven? He's a notorious dope dealer. He's hustling and, you know, womanizing like I was. How, how is he in the presence of God? I knew that much, even being born and raised Roman Catholic. And because I was born and raised Roman Catholic, I have the right by privilege to be able to talk about the Catholic Church because I was in it. So I decided at that point, I was moving to Los Angeles. I decided this man died 24 years old. He'll, he'll never see his 25th birthday. He's gone. I'm going to pursue every dream I ever had in my life. And I said, I'm going to move to L.A. and I'm going to pursue acting. I want to be an actor. Now, some of you may remember there was a television show out in the 80s called Different Strokes. There was one short guy, Gary Coleman, who was one of the kids, and there was another tall guy. His name was Todd Bridges. Well, he's my first cousin. His dad and my dad are brothers. First, first are brothers. Well, they're not anymore because they're both deceased. My uncle, Todd's father, died in 1997. He was 57 years old, and my dad passed away in 2017. We all grew up in the same neighborhood. We were first cousins. We, all, we were cousins long before he was a celebrity. So I moved down there. They had been trying to get me to L.A. for years anyway, so I moved down there to pursue acting. I did a couple of B-movies. Nobody ever saw them, but my heart was in radio. So I was listening to the radio stations in Southern California, and I noticed that this one particular station, all the major stations had what they called a mix master on staff, right? But this one particular station didn't have one. I, I was intrigued by that. Why doesn't this station, major station, have anybody on there mixing records. So I called the program director. It was a woman. Her name was Pam Wells. She was from Memphis, ironically. And I gave her my, my spiel, and she said, come on down. Let's, let's have a talk. So I drove all the way down. I was living in the, what's called the Valley at that point in time in Southern California. I drove down to the radio station, which was actually located in Compton at that point. They later moved, relocated to Inglewood, California. These are all L.A. suburbs. I went to talk to her. I told her my background, my history, my experience. She said, bring me a tape. I went home, and I mixed up a tape. I brought it back to her the next day. When I got home, this was about maybe a 45-minute drive, not counting traffic. By the time I got home, she had already left a message on my voicemail. You're hired. Come back down here. I want to talk about how we're going to do this. I was good at what I did, and I knew I was good at what I did. So here I am now in the office with this program director on this major Southern California radio station in the second biggest media market in the United States, New York number one, L.A. number two, Chicago three. And again, the whole thing about radio that just bit me when I was 13, I just had these so many questions flying around my mind. This is before I went to school. Why does AM sound different than FM? AM, of course, is amplitude modulation. FM is frequency modulation. Why do they sound different? Why is AM dry and hollow and FM is clear and wet? 
These are questions that always circle my mind. Why, why can I turn my stereo up when I'm listening to an album or a cassette tape and my speakers blow out if I turn the volume up too loud? But when I do that with FM radio, they don't blow up. I can turn the sound all the way up. Well, that's because frequency modulation, they're compressing that thing. They're compressing that music so much that you can turn it up as loud as you want. These are questions I had in my mind as, as a, a radio fanatic. Fanatic. Why does AM radio disappear, the signal drop, when I drive through a tunnel? Why does amplitude modulation, AM radio, travel further than FM? Why does it travel further at night? So I went to school to learn all that. So now I'm on this radio station. She says, Elvin, you can do whatever you want. Your control is your show. Six days a week, you produce it, you do what you want. So I produced this show. I called it Bumper to Bumper in the mix with Elvin Bridges. It was a rush hour traffic jam show for about 45 minutes every evening that I did three hours on Saturday night, a party jam. And I was very, very popular. When you're on a radio station in a market like L.A., you're basically on audition 24 hours a day because all the celebrities, all the movie stars, everybody lives there. I got so popular that one day Magic Johnson, Los Angeles Lakers point guard, I'm sure you've all heard the name, Magic Johnson called the radio station personally and asked for me to DJ his 30th birthday party. So about two weeks after that, I'm, I'm at a club owned by Prince in downtown L.A. Some, some of you know who Prince is. DJing a party for Magic Johnson. Every celebrity in town was there. And in my mind, I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. I've made it. In my sick, demented mind, again, not even thinking about this at all. Not at all. I'll get to that. Me and my friends used to have, actually have conversations about this. Well, we'll worry about that when we're 50. We'll get married when we're 50. These are things we talked about as young fools. So I'm on the radio. I get to 30 years old, and I decide I want to resign from being a DJ. <clears throat> I made a conscious decision. I don't want to be that old guy in the corner at a nightclub mixing records for teenagers or 20-somethings. That's not going to be me. It's time to graduate to something else. Take this degree I got, whatever I got, and this knowledge I got about radio and TV and film and apply it to something else. So I went into the music industry, and I'm going to accelerate this. I see time is moving. So I ended up producing a group that had a record that was on the radio, produced their album, and I was moving forward in that field as well. But I had an idol, and that idol was money. You all know the story of Lot, right? Now, if you read The Spirit of Prophecy, Lot chose the cities of the plain for a reason. He saw enterprise. He saw, he saw opportunity to make money. Now, him and Abraham, if you read Genesis 13, <clears throat> Lot and Abraham were already wealthy, very, very wealthy. But Lot wasn't satisfied. You see, Abraham, Father Abraham, as we call him, chose Canaan. He chose the country. Lot chose the cities. The Bible says plural, cities of the plain. So Lot actually had residences in the suburbs, and he also had his main spot in Upper West Side, Sodom. Well, that was my idol, too, was money. So I started dibbling and dabbling in things on the side that I didn't even need to do because the career was, was flourishing, but I liked money. 
I like the L.A. lifestyle, and I wanted to use it, live it. I remember my friend that got killed in that drug deal, he used to tell me, and by the way, I was not a drug dealer at all, but he would tell me, if you want to ever live that Miami Vice lifestyle, and that was hot back then, if you want to live that Miami Vice lifestyle, you have to get into this, this business. It's the only way. I said, I'm not doing that, man. I'm not doing that. I'll watch you do it. But I like money, and at some point, I got caught doing something illegal. So I went to jail. I did almost a year, about a year altogether. God was humbling me, but I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it. He was trying to get my attention. In other words, what actually happened was, I became more determined and more emboldened to go out and finish what I didn't finish doing the first time. If I had been a little smarter, I'm going to tell you something. For those of you here who have never done time or been in trouble, every criminal is innocent. They're all innocent. And I'm going to say from experience, every criminal is stupid. The law is always ahead of you. You think you're the first one to create something? Crime's been going on ever since Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 2. Nothing new, right? The preacher writes also, there's no new thing under the sun. Amen? So I got caught, and this beautiful young lady back here in the back, I don't know what she saw in me, but she stuck with me. I still to this day scratch my head. Why did she hang with me? God had a plan. So I believe God was impressing both of us, both of us. So I got out, and I said, I'm going to really, really get into this production thing. Everything I learned in school, I'm going to do it. I started writing screenplays. I actually wrote a screenplay in jail. I wrote three screenplays. I was writing movies, and I made enough connections with my radio life that I was able to get situated with producing my own trailer. We all know what a movie trailer is, right? A, a preview of a movie you're going to produce. I created a three-minute trailer, got a bunch of people, people that you still see on TV today were involved with that project. I had a production deal with New Line Cinema, and a production meeting, I'm sorry, a production meeting. Went in that building, talked to a high-level producer, he loved my idea, loved the trailer, basically told me in so many words, we're going to work with you, we're going to give you a deal, we're going to make movies. So I left, I remember, just like it was yesterday, I left that office, and I walked down the hall to the elevator, and I got in that elevator. And Alec Baldwin, we all know who Alec Baldwin is, right? He was in the elevator alone. I got in there, stood there, I'm on one side, he's on the other side. And I remember thinking to myself, these exact, this exact thing, I thought to myself, I said, I'm going to be rich and I'm going to be famous for the rest of my life, just like Alec. That went through my mind. Was I a fool? Praise the Lord, brother. So time goes on, but suddenly this deal that was a sure thing started to fall apart. They stopped taking my calls. They act like they didn't know me. At one point, I called, and the, the, the assistant to the producer said, Elvin, don't call us. We'll call you. I knew that was it. But you see, God was maneuvering. 
he was humbling me, but I just couldn't see it because I had zero spiritual eyesight, none. So I again began to fall back into crime. One thing I'm going to say about being a criminal, and I'll say this as fairly as I can, but the system is unfair. The time never fits the crime. What do I mean by that? When you do time and get out, unless you have a girlfriend or your parents in your corner to support you, you're like a teenager starting all over again. You have nothing. Nobody trusts you. Even family, I noticed even cousins and family members didn't trust me. Because now you're, you're not the same person anymore that you were. You, you're, you're untrustworthy. You're a crook. I'm not sure they even use that word anymore. You're a crook. So you have to literally begin to rebuild your life. But I got impatient with that and slowly started to fall back into the same lifestyle. They call it recidivism. Has anybody ever heard that term? Recidivism. That means the tendency for a first-time or second-time criminal to fall back into crime and get arrested again and go back to where he was. That's recidivism. And it happened to me. I got arrested again a year and a half later, still on paper, still on probation or parole from my first case. And I get arrested again. Low point. Lowest point in my life. We're talking about waymarks now. So... I was in that cell, and the thought of suicide crossed my mind. It really crossed my mind. My first thought was my parents. How can I let my parents down again? They thought I was crazy the first time. You're raised in a nice middle-class home, everything you needed growing up, and you turn to crime? So I wouldn't take suicide serious because I love life too much. But the fact that it crossed my mind tells you how down and low I was. I was low, lower than low, lower than low. I was thinking about how I was going to do it. Am I going to tie up some sheets like I see in the movies? What am I going to do? But again, that thought quickly left my mind, very quickly. So I'm facing some serious time now. Same, similar crime. Career criminal now, possibly. And so I called a guy that I did time with on my first case. His name was Jamal Abdul Haq. He was a former Muslim converted to a Christian. He was a very, very nice Christian man. Of course, he was in jail like me, but he was a Christian. And I called him up and said, man, you won't believe where I am. I'm back on 5 North, same block. He said, you got to be kidding me. I said, yeah, man, I messed up. So he says, well, you know, I've seen cases where even though you're on paper from your first case, you can get... You can get bail. I said, that's impossible. He said, no, no, I've seen it. I've seen it. You can get bail even though you're on, on probation. I said, let me call my, my public defender. So I called him up. He said, well, that's possible. It is possible. But the only way you're going to get that is if you give up a house. There has to be some property involved. So I said, man, I, can't, I cannot ask my parents. So I called, I called my wife. Collect. And she said, I need, I said, I can't do it. I can't, I'll just do the time. I can't ask them to give up this house. So she called them for me. And I called a couple of days later. And my parents said, well, we'll do it. We'll do it. I hung that phone up. I went to my cell and I cried like a baby because it taught me something. No matter how old your children get, you have to be in their corner and you have to back them up. No matter how, I was thinking in my mind then again, let's see, 
Brand J, you met my son. He was three weeks old. He was three weeks old. That killed me. But I was looking to him and saying, listen, no matter how old he gets or our other children in L.A., you have to always be prepared to help out your kids. I learned a huge lesson from my parents helping me. Huge lesson. So they put up their house. I got bail. All this is a whirlwind of activity going on. Right around that same time, my only sibling, Vivian, passed away. She died. It wasn't the myasthenia gravis. It was the steroids that broke down her system over a period of 17 years. She was on steroids. And it killed her. So that was an emotional thunderbolt for me and my family that she passed away. Again, another way mark. So I went to the funeral. We flew up to San Francisco. I had an ankle bracelet on. The judge had to give me permission to go to my sister's funeral. I got permission. I went. But let me tell you something that happened with my parents. And again, I'm trying not to miss any major points. I hate using notes, but I have to use them today. They distract me. My parents called me to tell me that she passed away. I was just in San Francisco five weeks earlier, and I knew she was doing real, real bad. Real bad. I was watching a game between the Chicago Bulls and the Indiana Pacers. I never forget. It was the Eastern Conference Finals. I was in, remember, I'm still in the world. Still in the world. And they called me. So I broke down like a baby, totally. Went to my place, and I was at Marcia's place when I got the call. I went to my place. And that night, I started to experience some supernatural phenomena. I have a testimony. I heard knocking on the walls. The TV started going off and on by itself, and the lights started to flash off and on by themselves. But I wasn't afraid. Why? Because I didn't know this at all. All I knew about this was Eve bit the apple. I'll let that sink in. Jesus died for our sins. And for some reason, I knew Revelation 6, when the the Lord comes back the second time, the wicked are going to call out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and to crush them. I knew that. I don't know why I knew that, but I knew that. So I wasn't afraid. I just knew the manifestations were my sister. My sister's trying to communicate with me. And I was very comforted by that, very comforted. So when everywhere I went, I heard knocking. I heard sounds. I heard wherever I was, but nobody else heard these things but me. It was very interesting. The devil was targeting me. I went to San Francisco for the funeral. I heard knocking on my parents at their house on the walls there. My mother didn't hear it. Only I heard it. Again, the, dark, the devil, for whatever reason, was only targeting me. He knew the connection my sister and I had. 13 months apart, we were like two peas in a pod. I come back to L.A. I'm still hearing them, experiencing the manifestations. It's hard not to include my wife in my testimony, but I have to intertwine her in this a little because she has a testimony too. She was studying. Providentially, the Lord put a very good friend of hers from her childhood, one block from where she lived, next door to one of her sisters. My wife is the 11th out of 12. So her baby sister was living a block away, and this individual was placed right next door to her, 
who happened to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Are you getting the lesson? You see where, we're, where the Lord's going with this now. So my wife ends up reconnecting with this, this little family, helping them out. This sister, 80, she's an 80-year-old Jamaican sister, a master evangelist, master evangelist, years of, 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 of experience, years. So my wife is being slowly given the truths of the last days through this Jamaican, 80-year-old Jamaican sister. I'm not aware of this yet. So again, <clears throat> I'm experiencing the things, and my wife comes to me and she says, that's not, that's not your sister, that's the devil trying to deceive you. And I argue with her. No, that's my sister. I know exactly how she would knock. She would use this cadence or this beat, and she, I know it's her. So my, my wife gives me a book to read called Deceived by the New Age. It was written by an SDA elder. I think he's still doing a Sabbath school coordinator in Southern California. I think the Norwalk Church this is the last I heard, the Norwalk SDA Church. So I read that book in two days. And I'm blown away. This man was on the verge of joining the Church of Satan. He was being led with like a dangling carrot with all these manifestations again, just like me. So I said, Lord, this is amazing. So I called her, called my wife, and I said, you know what? You were right. She said, no, God was right. I said, that's not my sister. That, those are demons trying to trick me. So I hung the phone up. I got on my knees. I hadn't prayed since Sunday school. I got on my knees, and I said, I, again, I didn't know what to say. I said, Lord, if you're God, that's what I said at first. If you're God, this is what I want you to do for me. If my sister's going to be in heaven, I want to make sure I'm in heaven too. I said, there's a war going on around me, an invisible war that I can't see. This is, this is reality. It's not, it's not a mirage. This is reality. I saw the reality of this. I experienced these things. And the Bible says, and the book she gave me, by the way, took you straight to the Bible. I know that the dead not know not anything. Now I see that. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, 5, 6, and 10. So I said, this is what I want you to do if you're God. I said, everything I mastered in the world, hustling for money, music. They used to call me the music historian. Sports. I was the sports historian. World Series, Super Bowl, NBA champions. I'll take you back to the 40s. I knew all, all the statistics, all of them, because that's all I lived for. It's amazing I use my, what God has blessed me with, a memory to memorize all those worldly things, but now he's taking that gift that he's given me, whatever you want to call it, and it has me, has me now applying it to this. Can you say amen to that? I said, everything I've mastered, again, music, sports, hust hustling women, everything I've done, hustling for money, I said, I want you to teach me your Bible just like those things. I, want, I said, I want the truth. That's what I told him. So a month later, a month later, my wife asked me, did you know, remember now, she's doing these secret reconnaissance missions with this 80-year-old Jamaican sister, learning the third angel's message. And she asked me, did you know that Saturday is the seventh day of the week, just like that? And I said, I never really thought about it. She said, yeah, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, March 7th, 321 AD. She's throwing all this information. I have no idea what she's talking about. And so I paused. I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check it out. I probably wanted to prove her wrong knowing me back then. So 
A couple of days later, I called several Roman Catholic churches in Southern California, several. Talked to several nuns, and I talked to several priests. And every single one of them, my brothers and sisters, every single one of them said the same thing to me. They said, yes, we changed the day by our own authority. That's what they told me. They didn't hesitate. They didn't blink. They didn't stutter. We changed it. So I hung the phone up, and I sat there. And I said to myself, if it wasn't important, why would they change it? I just reasoned it out. There must be something more to this Sabbath thing that I'm seeing on the surface. So I had to call my wife again. I called her again. You were right. You were right. She said, no, God was right. God was right. I said, I've, been really, I've really been humbled. So we accepted the truth. But I didn't get back to the story about me going back to jail again. I did. I mentioned I did mention that. I want to make sure I don't miss anything important. So we were brought into this message by a very serious person, 80-year-old Jamaican sister. We called her Miss P. Prudentia Stinnett was her name. Euphemia, thank you. My help me. Euphemia Stinnett, five foot nine, strong as a whatever, could bend down, touch her toes without bending her knees. She was something else. And she was hard on us. But we needed that. Coming out of the world, we needed that, especially me. She was loving, but she was hard. No nonsense. When you're in a Bible study, you don't drink anything. You don't eat during a Bible study. Don't cross your legs. She would tell my wife these things. And she would tell me. Maybe it was prophetic. I don't know. She would tell me. You're giving a Bible study. You're teaching or preaching. Always have your jacket on. Never preach with your jacket off. Never roll up your sleeves. Never unloosen your tie in front of a congregation. Never, never put your hand in your pocket when you're teaching or preaching. It shows disrespect and irreverence. It shows a casualness. It waters down the solemnity and the holiness of what you're doing. She would teach us these high, deep principles, very deep principles. And I, I love that sister. When I get to heaven... I'm looking for my wife, I'm looking for my kids, I'm looking for Miss P. Well, Jesus first, amen. I'm looking for Miss P. She took me and my wife out of, out of sure hellfire. God directed us to her, I'm telling you. So we got the truth, we baptized in 1998. And I got the state of the state of the dead was the foundation for me. Do me a favor and take your Bibles and turn to Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. We're winding up. We're at about 30 minutes right now. Acts 17. It's a story we're all familiar with. Acts chapter 17. Listen to this. Lord, please bless your words as we read them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 17, starting at verse 32. We're all familiar with the story. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, so first thing they did was they did what? They heard about it, right? They heard about it. Some mocked, and others said, 
we will hear thee again of this matter. How, so Paul departed, verse 33, from among them, 34. Howbeit certain men did what? Clave unto him and did what? And believe. That's what, that, what happened to me. I heard it. I believed it. And I clave to Jesus, clave to this Bible, the truth. But the first thing somebody had to do was tell me, isn't that the, the foundation, the foundation of evangelism? That somebody is exposed to the truth? They have to hear the truth or by the literary word, the written word, read the truth. That's the first seed. Expose them to it. <clears throat> That's exactly what Miss P did with my wife and I. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so we baptized in 98. Somebody bring me some water, please. <clears throat> Excuse me. We baptized in 1998, <clears throat> and we were on fire, on fire, everywhere we went, we told people the truth, on bus stops, supermarkets. I was working at that point in time when we first baptized for <clears throat> the, for the, I was working for AAA. Let me just briefly state that when you have, now first, now initially I have one felony. Now I get caught again. Now I have how many felonies? I have two. Now nobody trusts you. So I realize, I think I'm good, brother. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take it. I'll take it. <clears throat> I realize what I have to do. First of all, entertainment, that's, that's dead. That's history now. Entertainment, all that, that's history. That, that, that's, that's a wrap. And not being facetious, that's a wrap. So now I have to rebuild my resume. Remember, nobody trusts you. So I started off working minimum wage jobs for a few years. Nobody trusts you. But I did learn that the easiest way to get a job is when you already have one. When, you, when somebody else, when another company or organization or institution trusts you and they hire you, everybody else falls in line. Oh, well, yeah, he must be okay. They hired him. So I was able to reclimb that ladder step by step, menial jobs, but we needed money. So I worked them step by step. Got a job with AAA. I was a dispatcher overnight. That was, that was the, the money increased with AAA. Worked there for a couple of years. Got a job with the Southern California Gas Company. More money. Got a job with the Southern California uh, no, the Los Angeles Community College District, more money. Remember now, people trust you when you're working, especially for a reputable institution. Then I went from there to the state of California. Much more money, amen. But the point is, God was blessing us because we were serving him. My wife and I were giving Bible studies all through the 2000s, all through the 2000s. <clears throat> And we were blessed. So we left Tennessee. Again, we're studying the whole counsel of God. And we stumbled upon country living. And I'm winding down really now. So we left Tennessee and moved to, we left California and moved to Tennessee in 2009 on faith. We said, Lord, whatever you say we're going to do. 
Miss P instilled this in us. Whatever he says, do it. There are going to be no half-hearted Christians in heaven. That's what she would tell us. It's all or none. It's all or none. We were there about a little over a year. We had a family illness. We had to move back to L.A. Four and a half years later, we moved back to Tennessee, which was 2015. We've been here eight years. The Lord has blessed us. I was speaking on a prayer line. That happened by a fluke. Well, nothing's a fluke with God. Amen. I was at work at the Compton. You all know Compton, right? The Compton Department of Motor Vehicles. And I got a text from my brother that was in ministry. We weren't even thinking about ministry at all. We were very content with giving Bible studies. Very content. Large groups, 15, 20 people, or a little old lady at a coffee table with a lamp studying the Bible. We were content with whatever God had us do. I got a, I got a, a text from this brother asking me to replace him on a Southern California prayer line. This is kind of how everything started for us. I got back to him too late. He had already got somebody else to replace him. But about a month later, he texted me again and asked me to replace him again. So that time I, I responded quickly, and I, re, I re, replaced him that night on this prayer line, the Southern California Connection Prayer Line Ministry. I got a call from the director that next morning. She said, Brother Bridges, I've been knowing you all these years. Now, this is her saying this, not me. I'm not taking any credit. I'll just say she asked me to come back and speak more often. I'll just say that. So I started speaking on this prayer line. Same year now, 2012, I was asked to speak at a church for the first time, 2012. That was 11 years ago. Pico Rivera Seventh-day Adventist Church, a bilingual church in Southern California. Didn't know what I was doing. All out, so I said, okay, Lord, I'm just going to give a Bible study in the pulpit. And that's what I did for the most part. About a year later, the Lord gave my wife the name of our ministry, Living Manna. She came to me. She said, I think the Lord gave us the name for ministry, Living Manna. I said, I like Living Manna. That's a good name. I have to digress a little bit, though. We got a check in the mail while I was on this prayer line for $20. And it stunned me. We sat on the couch put it on the couch. We stared at it for like 10 minutes. And I was trying to figure out why would somebody send us money? All I'm doing is repeating this. This is all I'm doing, repeating the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. What, what did the Lord say through me that would impress somebody to send us $20? So we, we took that to mean God was telling us maybe there's something more he wants us to do. Again, we were very content with what we were doing. Maybe he wants us to do a little more. So that's pretty much how it started. We said, Lord, if you want us to do ministry, you have to open the door. John 10, you tell us you are the door. So you have to open the door and create opportunities. We don't know what to do. So here we are, 11 years after that. We've been blessed to travel all over this country, doing meetings, doing campaigns. We're blessed to go to Canada to do a campaign. Went to Africa a couple of years ago, six weeks, two weeks in Kenya, a month in Ethiopia, and it's been a heck of a ride. But it all started, it all started with the Lord humbling me. He had to humble me. I mean, he had to really bring me down low. So two years ago, a sister we know during COVID, a little over two years ago, was attending here. A lot of churches were closed, a lot were open around the country. So my wife 
because of this sister that was at that time visiting this church, she came and visited. This was like spring of 2021. Elder Starks then called and invited me. I've been knowing the Starks for about eight years. He called and said, this is a very nice church over in Tullahoma. And they're dispensing truth. I said, really? So a few months went by. I was real busy. I finally came over, visited maybe summer of 2021, and Pastor Floyd was preaching. I know he doesn't remember me being here, but I sat right back there somewhere in the back, and he was preaching. He taught out a revelation. I said, wow, revelation in Tullahoma? Not, not, nothing negative, but I, was, I wasn't expecting. I didn't know what to expect, actually. I didn't know what to expect. So I said, praise the Lord. But Brother Starks told me, well, that's not the pastor. I said, he's not? I thought he was. I assumed he was the pastor. So I came back maybe a month or two later, and Milano, Pastor Milano was, was preaching. I said, praise the Lord. So we started visiting, started visiting, developed relationships, started liking the place, and here we are. Can you say amen? Here we are. That's, that's how it all started. So if it wasn't for COVID, we wouldn't be here. So God is faithful. He's faithful. He's very faithful. I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to wrap up. Acts 16. You're already at 17. So Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. So what I'm trying to impress upon you, my brothers and sisters, is that God literally, he took me, he took me, he picked me up, he turned me around 180 degrees, and he put me down. That's what he did with my life. That's why the scripture reading is 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. I am truly a new creature. I'm a new human being by the power of the indwelling Christ. He did it. I had nothing to do with it. Who knows where I would be unless he didn't, had not sought me out. He came to me. He searched out me and got my attention. I need you to do something. First of all, I want to save you. But I know you are very high-minded and heady, Mr. Bridges. You are full of yourself. I have to humble you, really humble you. And that's exactly what he did. That second arrest, self was gone. I mean, gone. Acts chapter 16, verse 13. We all there? And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. 14. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us. What did she do? She heard them. Again, she heard the word. She heard it. Then what happened? Whose heart the Lord opened. Mm. That she attended or paid attention to, or was drawn to, unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Then what did she do in verse 15? And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. Constrained is just the opposite of restrain, right? To compel somebody, come, please come into my house. This is a perfect template of what God did for me. And we'll do it for anybody. But first they, again, have to hear the message. Hear it. 
Then what did the Lord do? What did he do to her, to Lydia? He opened her heart. This is a beautiful lesson here. It says it all. It says it absolutely all. Second Chronicles 5. Let's go there quickly, and then we're going to wrap up. Second Chronicles chapter 5. I'm sorry, Corinthians. Excuse me. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5. I'm going to repeat the scripture reading. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 17, we all there, amen? Again, the word of God says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a rebuilt person. Is that what the Bible says? He is a what? New creature, new. Old things are passed away. Behold, how many things? All things are become new. All. Now, that word creature is very interesting in this verse. It's Strong's number 2937. Let me read what it means. It is feminine, a feminine noun. The act of founding, establishing, building. The act of creating, a creation. A thing created. Of individual things or beings or a creature. Three, anything created. Four, after rabbinical usage by which a man converted from idolatry to Judaism was called a new creature. Five, the sum or aggregate of things created. But I want you to listen to the root word. Remember now, oftentimes a Strong's number, the original Greek or Aramaic, Aramaic or the Hebrew, there will be a root word from which that Original, that actual definition comes from. So this is root number, or Strong's number 2936, the root. Listen, to make habitable. Do we want the Holy Spirit to dwell in us? So we have to be recreated, don't we? Created, created. To make habitable. Of God creating the worlds. Again, creation. Listen to this, number two. To form, shape, or for example, to completely change or transform. We're talking about literally a new being, a brand new being. Be ye not conformed, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your what? Romans 12, 2. Transformed. That, that old Elvin is literally, he's dead. He's deceased, buried and dead long time ago. Buried. So my question to you is, are you completely changed as a Christian? Even Christians who have been Christians 20, 30, 40 years may not be completely changed. Because most of us, and I include myself, are holding on to something. It's hard to let go. Many times, isn't it? I'm just being real. It's hard to let go of things. Let me read one last thing to you from Christ's Object Lessons, page 408. Christ's Object Lessons, page 408. She makes a very profound statement here. It's actually page 411. 411. 
It's in the context of Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. Listen. The class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. Really. How? She says they have a regard for the truth. They believe this. They have advocated the truth. They're going to the back of the church, after church, every week, and grabbing tracts and little booklets and going out and promulgating the truth everywhere they can. They advocate it. They are attracted to those who believe the truth. They go to every camp meeting they can to see all the high-power speakers. But, she says, but they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's working. Yield. They have not fallen upon the rock, Christ Jesus, and permitted their old nature to be broken up. I know people. They call, they, they come to me, they talk to me. And my wife. I can't stop doing this or that. I've been in this truth for 20, 25, 30, 40 years. I'm doing the same thing. Why? Because they have not fallen on the rock. They have not permitted, I just read, to let their old nature be broken up. This class are represented also by the stony ground hearers, Matthew 13. They received the word with readiness, but they failed of assimilating its principles. I know, but I won't do. Something is holding me back. Its influence is not abiding. Listen to this. This is powerful. The spirit works upon a man's heart according to his desire, one, and consent. Implanting in him a new nature. Consent? You mean I have to give Jesus permission, the Holy Spirit permission to come into my life, into my heart, and take control? Yes, that's what we just read. Consent. Implanting in him a new nature, not rebuild or remodel, reconstituted or reinstituted a new creature. But the class represented by the foolish virgins have been content with a superficial work. Superficial. She says they do not know God. They have not studied his character. They have not held communion with him. Therefore, they do not know how to trust, how to look and live. Their service to God degenerates into a form. Having a formal relationship with Jesus will not gain us admittance into heaven. Sister White says we will be miserable there. Nahum 1.9, affliction shall not arise a second time. That's what the Bible says. God's not going to take any chances. He's only letting people in who are serious. This is a serious, serious denomination, and this is a serious, serious movement and a serious, serious message we have. The last message to a dying world. How much more serious can it get? There's going to be a class of people that are going to be telling us, you mean you knew this? You knew these things and you did not tell us? Why did you not make yourself acquainted with us? We perish. We are all lost. All they needed was a tract or a book or a knock on the door, something. Who's going to be responsible? We are. Brothers and sisters, if there's anyone here, and this is my simple appeal, if there's something 
that you're holding on to. For whatever reason that you're having trouble letting go of. We're all human. I'm preaching to me. I'm preaching to Brother Bridges. Things we like in the world. Things we might glance at every now and then on YouTube. Things we might look at every now and then on Facebook. But there's going to be no YouTube and no Facebook in heaven. So God tells, he's telling us, you need to give all that up right now. Start rehearsing for that now. Now. Anybody who's having difficulty giving up anything, I'm going to ask you to please to come forward. We need to pray. And I'm praying for me. Anybody. Anybody. Who is having issues with this world. The Bible says in 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of the Father, but are of who? Of the world. So we need to develop some thick skin. And again, I'm preaching to myself. Lord, whatever thou sayest, I will do. The problem with the children of Israel, they said, well, Lord, whatever you say, we will do. The problem is they tried to do it in their own strength without God's help. We need Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. Elder Starks, I'm going to ask you to come up here, brother, please, and bless us with a prayer to the throne of God. And I'm going to kneel right next to you. Father in heaven, you have spoken to your children once again on this holy Sabbath day. And Lord, we thank you for the message, the encouragement, the warnings in which you have given to us today. And we take it not lightly. We take it not for granted, Father, the words you have spoken. And also, Father, we recognize in our own strength we can do nothing. But, Father, you have promised us to empower us with your grace and your mercy and your kindness to give us the strength to be overcomers. And, Father, I know that each one of us here desire to be an overcomer here this morning. So we thank you, dear Father. And we're asking, Lord, that the work you've started in each and every one of us here, that you would finish it, Father, whatever it takes, Lord. Whatever it takes to be like you, we ask in, Lord, that you would finish that work in each and every one of us. As Elder said earlier, we all want to be neighbors in heaven. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what you are doing in our lives and our hearts and transforming us and giving us the strength to give up those things we know that will not be in heaven. So we thank you for what you're about to do and what you're going to do. And as always, Father, we're careful to give you the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you're blessed this morning, can I hear you say amen?
And we didn't just hear a message, we heard a testimony of what God did for Elvin and his life. And Revelation twelve eleven it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto the death. We all, when we get to heaven, will have a story of his faithfulness and goodness, just like we heard here today. So let's take that with us. Um, number 264, if you'll stand with me for our closing hymn.